Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, May 13th, 2016. Have a little Friday the 13th game for you today. Those of you who remember Sesame Street will know the game well. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, and I and I mean this, it's really tragic. Sadly, there are a bunch of people who are going to places that call themselves churches, and they're listening to the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, uh, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those whom we need to be listening to, and rather than be taught what God's Word really says, rather than be taught the will of God, for what, what God wills for us to believe, what God wills for us to teach, preach, confess, defend, they are taught absolute, total gobbledygook and nonsense. We cover that here every day at Fighting for the Faith at least every weekday. And, uh, you know, I know that this is a rough-and-tumble program, that what we do here is politically incorrect, that that I might seem like a mean old gunky head. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, and so I never ask you to give me the benefit of the doubt or listen with an open mind. Always listen with an open Bible. And, uh, you know, all of this matters, and the reason why it matters is not because I say so. Yeah, no, listen, my theological opinions aren't worth diddly squat. They really aren't. In fact, you know, if if this program were about me giving you my opinions as I pontificate and spin off profundities from my head, yeah, that wouldn't actually be worth your time. Instead, um, this is what God's Word re- reveals, yeah. Um, uh, Titus chapter 1, you know, Paul writing to uh, Titus, he says this, I left you in Crete, verse 5, by the way, so that you might appoint what remained and put it into order and appoint elders in every town. These are pastors, as I have directed you. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or 
insubordination for an overseer, a pastor, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable and a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Next part, though, listen to this. And the reason for this is that there are many uh, who are insubordinate. That's in the body of Christ. There are those who are insubordinate. And those who are insubordinate are those who are teaching false doctrine. They are rebels in Christ's church. They are empty talkers. They are deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And this, they must be silenced. Yeah, God wills for them to be silenced. Yeah, by pastors, by Christians. Uh-huh. Yeah, they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a well, prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And sadly, in our postmodern, politically correct world that we live in, there are a bunch of people who have turned away from the truth. They are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, teaching for shameful gain the thing that they ought not to teach, or many things. And the church has no fortitude whatsoever to do what Christ has commanded here through the Apostle Paul. And that is to rebuke them, to silence them, to refute them, to challenge them, to, yeah, silence them through sound doctrine. And so we're doing here on this program hmm, what Christ has actually told his church to do that so many are unwilling to do today. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Yeah, it's politically incorrect, but absolutely necessary. And this isn't about my opinions. This is about what the Word of God says. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do today. It's Friday the 13th, and I thought we would play a game. We've played this game before, but it's been a while since we've done that. And if you remember Sesame Street, they used to have a song, and the song goes, one of these things is not like the other. So what we're going to do, we're going to play that game today, and uh, we're going to put forward... Four different things. Because, you know, on Sesame Street, it's always four things. It's not three. It's not two. It's not five. It's not six. It's four. We're going to put forward four things. We'll just kind of walk through it and see if you can figure out which one of these things doesn't belong. <laughs> and, and maybe that's the wrong way of putting it. Which of these things is not like the others? I think that's the good way of putting it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to begin with a uh, Victoria Osteen update as she explains to us, uh, well, the doctrine of unplugged. Mm -hmm. The doctrine of unplugged. We'll switch gears and then we will do a Perry Stone update as he takes us back to the future where while he was preaching at Rod Parsley's building. And uh, somewhere in there we'll take a break and, uh, and then we'll also, uh, in hour number one, be covering Stephen Furtick's um, uh, a lesson on how the seed is on schedule. Yeah, he's going to be teaching us that important doctrine of how the seed is on schedule. And uh, and then in hour two, we will be listening to a sermon by Martin Lloyd Jones, the late great Martin Lloyd Jones. 
and uh, he's going to be preaching on Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. Uh, so uh, let's see if you can figure out which one of these things is not like the other, but it's not just enough to figure out which one of these things is not like the other. The question is, why? This is the question you need to ask yourself. Why is it that this thing that is not like the others is so different than the others? That's kind of the idea here. So let's get into our game, and uh, since we're playing a Sesame Street game, that requires us to, well, play some music. Here we go. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other by the time I finish this song? All right, so see if you can figure out which one of these things is not like the other, since we're going to start off with a Victoria Osteen update that requires us to do this. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself in an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy, fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in Shiny teeth that glisten, just like the Christmas tree. You know they walk a mile just to see me smile. Woo! Shiny teeth and me. Oh, that's right. That's Chip Skylark and Shiny Teeth and Me. Uh, we use that for the Osteen family and all things Lakewood. And so we're heading over to Lakewood as we listen to Victoria Osteen and her latest and greatest teaching on... Well, unplugging, unplugging, you know, that great biblical doctrine, unplugging. Here's Victoria Osteen to explain. So the other day I sat down to uh, work on my computer. And as I sat there, let me just tell you this first. I never turn off my computer. You know, I just leave it. And it has a little mechanism that just puts it to sleep. So I came like I normally do. Got to my- uh, although getting the whiteout off of her computer screen is a constant hassle for the IT department out there at uh, Lakewood. You know, just saying, you know. I uh, sat down at my computer ready to, to do some things. And I usually just wiggle my mouse and my screen comes on. Well, I wiggle my mouse and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. So I wiggle my mouse again and nothing happened. So I wiggle my mouse and started tapping on my keyboard. And that's- Time to call IT. Yeah. Happened. I was like, oh, no. You know, I've heard before that computers can completely crash. And I thought, surely my computer didn't crash. I'm sure that it didn't. And stop calling your computer, surely, you know. Surely it's not gone. So I thought, well, I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call the IT guys here at the church. And so I called and I got a hold of Nick and I'm like, Nick, you know, my computer won't respond. What do I do? And he said, well, Victoria, you know, he's been to my office before. He says, Victoria, just, you know, check this cable and check that cable. So I'm checking it. Are they all tight? Yes, they're tight, Nick. Is a little green light on on your power strip? Yes, Nick, it's on. He's like, well, do this, do that. So I'm doing everything he's telling me to do. And the computer's not responding. So I said, Nick, I I can't have this. What am I going to do? And he said, okay, this is what I want you to do, Victoria. He said, on the back of your computer screen is a main plug. He said, I want you to pull that plug. 
He said, then I want you to do something that may sound a little funny, but I want you to hold down your power button for about 10 seconds and let all that old information drain out of there. (laughs) What? (laughs) So holding down the power button on an unplugged computer will help all the old information drain out of it. Wow. I didn't know that's how you pulled the plug on old information. Do you need a bucket to catch the old data as it drains out of the computer? (laughs) We continue. He said, I want you to wait a minute before you plug it back in. Wait about three minutes before you plug the computer back in. If it doesn't work, give me a call. Yeah, I'm pretty convinced that the IT department, if they told her to chew a stick of bubble gum while rubbing her tummy and reciting the uh, <laughs> the Gettysburg Address, she may have done that, you know, anything to get her computer working, you know. I got to work, I pulled that plug, I held that power button on, just seeing all that old information just drain right out of there. Just You watched it, <laughs> really? <laughs> You watched it drain out of your computer. That All that old information was just, just draining right out. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I've, I've never watched the old information draining out of my computer. What did it look like? Yeah, I'm curious. When this was going to work. So when I got ready after a few minutes, I plugged that main plug back in. Yeah. And voila. My beautiful picture of my family appeared on the screen. It was my screensaver. Have you ever heard your computer? It goes, made that great noise. I was like, yes, yes. So I sat down at my computer ready to work. And as I was working, I got this thought. I thought, you know, sometimes our lives get so loaded down. Our systems become so loaded down with information that we don't work the way we were intended to. And I thought, you know what? That's what we need to do in life is we need to pull the plug and disconnect from the busyness of life, from information overload and get in the presence of God. Mm. Yeah. So you, you need to unplug and you know, let all the old information drain out of you, you know, while holding down the power button. Yeah. And so that, you know, when you're, screensaver comes on, you know, you can sit there and make the happy noises of The Bible says that when you wait upon the Lord, he'll renew your strength. Uh, and so that's what that verse, I've always wondered what that verse meant. Now I know. Wow. You know. See, Nick told me, he said to unplug that computer and wait. Yeah. Because all the systems had to reload. They had to recalculate. They had to get back in the proper place. Then when I plugged it in, it worked beautifully. Just like I had to pull the plug. We've got to pull the plug on the busyness of life. We've got to get in the presence of God and let him reboot our faith. (laughs) I've never tried that. Yeah, so... So have you had your faith rebooted yet? I mean, have you pressed the power button while you're unplugged so that the old data can, you know, drain out? 
Yeah, okay, so that's uh, item number one in our little game today. Uh, it's time for item number two. That requires us to play our song again. Here we go. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other by the time I finish this song? Yeah, in this case, by the time we finish this podcast. All right, so item number two is from Perry Stone. And uh, since we're doing a Perry Stone update, that requires us to do this. I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. The head on my shoulders is sour loose. And I ain't got sense. God gave a goose. Lord, I ain't crazy. But I'm a nut. Is it wetter underwater if you're there when it rains? Is it shorter to New York than it is by plane? Between myself and I, I wonder who's the dumber. Is it hotter down south than it is in the summer? I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. That's right, Leroy Pullins and I'm a nut. All right, so uh, item number two today comes <laughs> to us from Perry Stone. Yeah, Perry Stone, he uh, recently spoke at a prophetic conference of sorts uh, at <laughs> Rod Parsley's building. Notice I didn't say church, Rod Parsley's building. And uh, while he was there, he was preaching on, well, that all-important prophetic insight known as Back to the Future. Yep, here's, um, here's Perry Stone to explain. Here we go. From Cleveland, Tennessee, please welcome Dr. Perry Stone. Well, bless his name. Aren't you glad to be in camp meeting on Sunday night? That's what I call it, camp meeting. Turn around there and shake hands with three or four people and tell them you come to the right place tonight. Just let them know it. You come to the right place tonight. Hallelujah. Pastor, Pastor always tells me before I come to the pulpit, he said, have fun. Well, I'm going to tell you something. We're about to have fun tonight. We're about to have fun. Yeah, Rod Parsley in, imitates, he impersonates a pastor. He ain't no pastor. In the next few moments, I'm going to take you into the most, and I promise you this, this might be the most unusual message you will ever hear. Mm. And we're going to throw some things out there for you to chew on a little bit. And when we get to the end of it, you're going to see where we're going. Amen. So I don't know about you. I, I, there's a lot I could say. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have Mama Parsley here. I got to really preach good with Mama here. When Mama shows up, you better do some preaching. You know what I'm talking about. But you can be seated. I want you to open your Bibles immediately to the book of Numbers, chapter 12. One of my favorite series of movies that have ever been made is called Back to the Future. Does anybody watch Back to the Future? It's one of those things you got to kind of think this thing out. So here's a guy that wants to change his present situation. But by changing his present situation at times, he's got to go back in time. And by going back in time, he changes the outcome of what's going to happen. Now, you won't know where I'm going with this, but in the next few moments, I'm going to preach on back to the future. And it won't make a bit of sense to you till I get about halfway into this message because we're going to see. Yeah, how is that possible? I mean, the reason I ask is that 
you know, if a pastor's job is to preach the word and I can just open up my Bible to Numbers chapter 12 and read it and understand it, why would this seem so odd or weird or brand new? How to see the future from there to here. I did not say from here to there. From there back to here. Numbers 12, 6 through 8, he said... Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. I will speak to him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings as he sees the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? It is the Lord that the statement is made in the New Testament. Christ, the lamb slain. Yeah, it's about the Lord. Okay, there were people grumbling against Moses. That's, okay. No context, just some out-of-context words, but we're going to go back to the future. Okay. From the foundation of the world. And we talk about the sovereignty of God and what does God know and how does God speak to us about the future. Ecclesiastes 1, 9, and 10. The thing which has been is that which shall be. And that which is, has been done is that which shall be done. Out of context. There's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter, oh, that's verses 1, 9, and 10. In chapter 3, there's a simple... Yeah, I'd go back and listen to Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Uh, we've been working our way through the entire book of Ecclesiastes, and I don't seem to recall Pastor Jeremy Rohde teaching the that all-important back-to-the-future doctrine. Verse, and basically, twice Solomon wrote and said, if you want to understand what's going to happen in the future, you have to go back and study the past. Um, Solomon really didn't say that. You twisted Solomon's words to make it sound like Solomon said that, but Solomon never really said that. This happened to me years ago when I was in Bulgaria. Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel, and I got to realizing something. Wait a minute, there's a Babylon at the end of days. Then I worked my way from chapter 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Pastor Parsley and I just taped a program on this. Again, Rod Parsley just impersonates a pastor. Uh, he's a money-grubbing televangelist and a fleecer of Christ's sheep. I mean, you can go to chapter 6 and see the story of Noah as it was in the days of Noah's soul. It be the time of the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, yeah, and Jesus makes it clear what he means by that in the Olivet Discourse itself, where Jesus explains just as in the days of Noah, people were marrying and giving in marriage, you know, that basically going about their normal lives completely unaware that destruction would soon sweep them to their deaths. That's what he meant by that. He explains it. You come into chapter 5 of the book of Genesis, you got the translation of Enoch. That's the rapture. Then in chapter 4... What? The translation of Enoch is the... What? Got the mark of Cain, and he's punished seven times, and a mark is put on his head. That's the mark of the beast, the seven-year tribulation that happens after... <laughs> so the mark of Cain is a predecessor to the mark of the beast. Notice it was God who put the mark on Cain... Uh-huh. Rapture. You come from chapter 4 back to chapter 3, you have the binding of Satan. 
happened. That is anybody with me? That's what happens at the end of the tribulation when Satan is bound a thousand years. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, everything is perfect. The last two books of the Bible, Revelation 21, 22, everything is in the perfect. In the first two chapters, there's no sin. Last two chapters, there's no sin. First two chapters, there's a tree of life. Last two chapters, there's a tree of life. First two chapters, there's a one river running through Eden. At the end of the Bible, there's a river called the river of life. In the first two chapters, there's no death. In the last two chapters, there's no death. The reason is, you've got to go back to the beginning to figure out how it's going to end. Yeah, this is total confusion. I did that real fast. I may have lost a few of you, but it's all right. Now, I want to, talk, I want, I want to show you three examples tonight of something very odd. One of these, the first one, to be quite honest, is a little bit... Well, the first thing that's odd is your preaching and your message. Clearly odd and not in accord with sound biblical doctrine. It's like you're making stuff up. Speculation. The others can be proven, I believe, from the Bible in one of the most unusual things. First of all, I want you to consider the book of Revelation with me. And I want you to consider the fact that when John begins to see the book of Revelation, he said, I, John, saw, I saw, I saw, I saw. But chapter 11, verse 1, an angel begins to speak with him. Later on in the study of the book of Revelation, you will discover that this is the seventh angel. You will then discover the angel talking to him is one of the seven angels pouring out the judgments of the tribulation out of heaven as they're manifesting on the earth. Now, when I say angel, you think of an angel with wings, an angel with white, an angel with the gold belt, an an angel that's glowing. The Greek word for angel can mean a human messenger or it can mean a heavenly messenger. Yeah, that's true. Have to read the context of what's being studied in the scripture to determine is it a human messenger or is it a supernatural messenger. Now, when John sees all of these things, all of these things taking place, I want to, I want to read to you what it says. One of the seven angels who had the seven last bowls with the seven last plagues came and talked to me and said, "Come, I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife." Revelation 21 and verse 9, the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, I, John, saw and heard. Saw meaning he saw it, hearing the things the angel said and when I heard I fell down to worship before the feet of him the angel who showed me these things now comes one of the oddest verses in the book of Revelation then the angel said to me see that you do it not for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and those who keep the words of the book worship God now, this is very odd. This is one of the seven angels that poured out the vials and the plagues. And yet, he says to John, don't worship me because I am a fellow servant and I am of thy brethren, the prophet. Now, in the Old Testament, there, uh, there oh my, help me, Holy Ghost on this. Help me, Jesus. Yeah, I don't think that's the Holy Spirit that's causing that. Uh, Revelation uh, 22, verses... Um, yeah, the, the the verses we're looking at are verses 8 and 9. And here's what it says um, from the ESV. He's preaching from the King James, and I fear he's pulling a fast one. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. So when you read it in the ESV, which I think gives a very good, accurate uh, reading of the uh, the Greek there in the text, the angel is just saying he's a servant just like himself, just like the prophets, 
and you know that he's not saying he's of the prophets. Um, yeah, that's not actually what the Greek says. So uh, Perry Stone is engaging in a fast one here. Testament, you will discover that Old Testament prophets would predict certain things that were going to happen in the future, like in the tribulation. One of them said that the sun would be dark and the moon would be turned to blood. That was Joel. Another of them said the earth would be shaken out of its place. That was Isaiah. You discover it talks about how the sun was scorched men. Now, here's what I believe. When you begin to look at the judgments in Revelation chapter 6 by the seven angels, seven angels here's what you got. You've got a sword that appears upon men. The sea becomes blood. The rivers turn to blood. The sun scorches men. Severe darkness comes up and the Euphrates River dries up. You'll find these original prophecies listed by six different Old Testament prophets. So in other words, when those angels are pouring out those judgments, they're not just angels with wings that have been with God in the beginning. You ready for this? They are prophets who predicted it, who are permitted to fulfill the word of their prophecy by pouring out the judgment they talked about. Um... Yeah, uh, that's quite the tenuous uh, interpretation of Scripture. Boy, he's getting real creative here. Uh, not really good on uh, sound exegesis. Yeah, it's like he's trying to read stuff into the text that just isn't there. Because, of course, you know, he's Perry Stone. And, you know, he's the great cracker of all eschatological codes and things of that nature. All right, we're going to take our first break, and we'll continue with this when we come back. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. A little bit more of Perry Stone. Then we have some Stephen Furtick and then Martin Lloyd-Jones. See if you can figure out which of these things doesn't belong. We'll continue. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> no, oh, no, oh, a pirate's life for me. We'll pillage the plunder, we rifle the loot, drink up me hearties, yo ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, drink up me hearties, yo ho. Yo ho, yo ho, a pirate's life for me. We exhort me to we And now, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. Now, Mildred. I have some very important information to show you in this next video. It's going to give you the tools necessary to know if you're hearing directly from God. But anyways, Dr. Barbie, we are going to talk today about symbols. Yes, I like symbols. Because oftentimes God speaks in symbols. So outside of symbols, what are some of the ways that God speaks to his people? Well, major ways through his word. But his Holy Spirit speaks to us and communicates to it through a symbolic language, through even signposts on the highways, through music, 
through the dance, through nature. The other day I was at your home and a dove kept flying by the window. And to me it was the Holy Spirit bringing messages through the dove appearing, which represents the Holy Spirit. So as you can see, Mildred, God talks to us in many, many, many ways in everyday life. Which is why... I got you this. A Cracker Jack prize? Yes. I mean, no! Do you have any idea how many box tops I had to send in for this thing? Um, no. It was a lot. It doesn't matter. Anyway, what you see before you is, in fact, your very own Holy Spirit decoder ring. What does it do? What doesn't it do? When I turn it on, it has the ability to warn you when the Holy Spirit is trying to give you an important message. Like what? <laughs> I'll show you. We know that the Holy Spirit can talk to us in all kinds of ways. He could even be trying to send me a message through this radio right now. I'm on a to hell. Hold on, let me change the station. for now. <laughs> Let me help you turn on the ring. I have a great idea. Why don't you take it out for a test drive? Aren't you gonna come with me? <laughs> you know I can't leave. Being under house arrest is so much fun. If I were to leave my house for more than 20 seconds, then the cops would show up and tase me again. And who wants that? Now here's how the ring works. When it beeps like this, that means that there's a sign that you need to see in the area around you. Um, Mr. Sunshine, when the ring goes off, how am I going to know what the message is? Trust me, you'll know. It'll be so obvious that you won't miss it. And on top of that, the ring will make this sound when you've guessed it correctly. It couldn't be simpler. You are now free to leave. I'm really sorry to have to bother you at your house. They told me that these sessions are a part of the pastor's vision and that if I don't go, it will be a sin against God. You think that somebody under house arrest would be free from any and all ministerial obligations, but no! I guess that would make too much sense. I'm sorry that I cause you so much pain. It's all your... I mean, not your fault. <laughs> my, my, look at the sun. It's time for you to go. Have fun with the decoder ring! This is gonna go off. I see a McDonald's. I see a sign twirler dressed up as a hot dog. And I see the town park. You want me to go to the park? Okay. There's a dog eating grass, his owner is picking up the poop, and there's a bird flying towards the road. Is the bird a message? 
little bird just got hit by the truck. I think I get the message. Uh, all I see now is a couple having a picnic by the pond. You are such a jerk! I think they just broke up. Um, there's a tetherball court, but there's no tetherball or rope, it's just a pole. I don't see any kind of message here. I think you're broken. I'm gonna take you off my finger now. Oh no, it's stuck. I'm gonna have to go get some soap from the bathroom. I can't let you do that, Mildred. Oh dear, it's become self-aware. Mildred, you and I are bonded as one. I am an instrument here to reveal his secrets to you. I will deliver his messages to you, for it is his will that you should know them. We are going to be together forever. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Yeah, that's one of the real dangers of listening to this program. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew... You're signing up to, well, automatically contribute an amount of money that you specify. That's right. There are four ranks in our crew. The lowest rank is Powder Monkey, and that's a commitment of $9.95 a month. After that, it is um, it is Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month, and then Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five a month. This is a great way to support us, by the way. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly, and I mean this, truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's a, just a little bit more Perry Stone as we continue with our game uh, one of these things is not like the other. So here we go. Yeah. So I, was, I really decided to kind of mess with my secretary. You know, I have about nine secretaries, and I called them all in. I said, I'm going to really mess with their mind on this one. I said, let me ask you, who was the seventh angel? They said, we have no, dude, no clue. You're the prophecy, dude. <laughs> and I read this verse. I said, who is this fellow servant? Who is this person that John saw? They said, I don't know. And I said, first, let me preface what I'm going to say by this statement. I said, do you understand that when Jesus was raised from the dead, Mary had been with him most of his ministry and she did not recognize who he was. Do you know why? They said, no. I said, because he had white hair. Have you ever seen anybody that has black hair one minute and they have dark, uh, they, they have uh, black hair and they have white hair? I know a guy that was almost hit by a train and over it. With- um, have you read the text? Um, Mary's weeping and she has her back turned to Jesus and when, you know, he says to her, Mary, the text says she turns around. And, and you know, and that, oh man, it, no white hair is mentioned regarding Jesus in his resurrection accounts. <laughs> you, you just can't make this stuff up. I mean, these guys have like, they're not bound by what the text says They'll just make stuff up because, oh, they're so much smarter than the rest of us. You know, clearly those of us who actually rely on what the text says, we're not paying any attention. <laughs> we continue. Uh, 72 hours, he turned totally gray. You wouldn't know it was him until you looked at him real closely. Someone said, you mean Jesus has white hair? Yes, you haven't read the book of Revelation on his hair? Yeah, that's in the book of Revelation. Um, Jesus also in the book of Revelation has a big sword coming out of his mouth. You think maybe that made it hard for him to be recognized by Mary Magdalene in the garden? Yeah, you know, white hair and a sword coming out of your mouth. That might be tough to recognize Jesus. <sighs> was uh, On his head was hair like white as snow. You see, the, the, what Jesus Christ probably died, a dark-haired Jew, but during the crucifixion, because of what happened to his physical body and the shock that his body went through, in 72 hours, laying in the grave, his hair turned totally snow white. And when he came out of the grave, he did not look like the young Jesus. He looked like a very mature man with gray hair. Says no biblical text anywhere. I mean, huh? yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm a nut indeed. Okay, uh, we're gonna, <laughs> man, I think you'll you kind of get the point. Yeah, um, let's move along. Let's play our song again here. Here we go. 
One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other? By the time I finish this song, that's, that's right. One of these things is not like the other. See if you can spot which one it is before the end of the program. And since we're doing a, a Stephen Furtick update, that requires us to do this. Sing along if you know the music. You walked up to the pulpit like you were a man of God. Your hand strategically cut to the new style. The fever was making hot You had one eye on the camera As you watched the crowd applaud All of the pastors dreamed you'd be their mentor You'd be their mentor And you're so vain You'll probably think the Bible's about you You're so vain Bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you? Only several years ago, when I was just a baby sheep, well, you told me we were made to serve, and my time was all you'd need, but you gospel heard the real gospel and you're so vain you'll probably think the bible's about you you're so vain i bet you think the bible's about you don't you don't you all right we're heading over to elevation church charlotte north carolina by the way they have announced over there that they will be holding Another Heresy Olympics. Now, they don't call it that, but they uh, this fall, they will be having the Code Orange Revival again. And that can mean only one thing. We're going to go wall to wall with the coverage of the Heresy Olympics like we did last time. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. We're, so what we're going to be listening to from Stephen Furtick is, <laughs> is part of a message titled, The Seed is on schedule. The seed is on schedule. And in this particular sermon, I you know, I don't know what to call this thing. He's going to basically engage in what I'm going to call the narcissistic switcheroo. Yeah, it's he begins by reading the text from the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, and then he clearly has done some commentary work using his Logos software and identifies that we're talking about the kingdom of God, and literally it's like a magic trick. Yeah, the best, That's the best way I can put it, because no sooner does he start off with some good definitions that without any warning, he pulls the old narcissistic switcheroo and ends up s- switching the definition of one of the terms that he used. I'll point it out along the way, because 
Um, you know, that kind of sleight of hand I'm able to spot pretty quickly. So here's Stephen Furtick and his message titled, The Seed is on Schedule. Here we go. I just want to read this scripture. Last week when I was preaching about the mustard seed and how it looks little, but little is much when God is in it. And now if you can see the tree and the seed, it's a matter of time before the birds of the air are going to be nesting in the branches of the blessing that sometimes you can't even perceive when it's in the beginning stage. I got stuck on that in my own personal life. And the phrase that really was recurring in my heart was, yet when planted, it grows. And I want to back up a little bit from the branches where we ended last week in Mark 4. I want to go back to verse 26 of this same chapter of Scripture. Have you been enjoying the Functional Faith series? I had some people that have heard me preach for 10 years now tell me this is my favorite one you've ever done. So that felt good to know I still got it. <laughs> I still got it. And what we want to do today is stay on this uh, theme of, of faith as analogous to a seed and use this agricultural metaphor that Jesus seems so keen on in Mark 4.26 to illustrate some lessons for our own life. And illuminate our understanding of the kingdom. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. And night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. Though he does not know how, all by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. All right, so there's the text. One of Jesus's parables. All right. Okay. Let's see what he does with this. Wow. So I want to talk to you today with an encouraging word. I want to tell you that the seed is on schedule. Um, what? The seed is on schedule. And we want to dig into this. Let's pray one more time. God, I ask that you would give me what these people need. You know good and well that I don't have what they need, but I know good and well you do. So make a transfer through my mouth in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Groundwork. Jesus is helping his disciples to have a perspective of patience as they await the kingdom of God to be fully manifested. He knows that they want a militaristic rule and reign of the kingdom of God. And yet contrary to their expectations or desires, he's letting them know that the kingdom of heaven is going to be revealed in stages. All right. So he's done some work here. He's checked some commentaries. And since Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, he is basically interpreting this text and saying, that the kingdom of God will be revealed in stages. So he understands this is a parable about the kingdom of God. All right, so far, so good, kind of. We continue. In stages. So he gets into probably the most accurate presentation of what it feels like in our own lives as we're waiting on what was planted by faith to produce a harvest. Um, what? We're talking about the kingdom of God. What was planted in our hearts by faith to produce a harvest? What are you talking about? And he talks about different stages of faith. Uh-huh. I think if you can 
realize that one thing about the nature of faith, that everything that God will reveal in your life is going to be revealed and accomplished in stages. Now, that's the switcheroo. There it, it happened so fast. Uh, did you blink? Did you miss it? We were talking about the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God the dream destiny thingy that God has supposedly revealed in your heart? Answer, no, it isn't. So, I mean, he started off so well. I mean, he knows this has something to do with the kingdom of God. He's interpreting the parable as the kingdom of God is revealed in stages. And then he switches the definition of the kingdom of God to the dream destiny thingy that God has revealed in your heart, that he's going to reveal in your life in stages, which is not what this text is about at all. So the switcheroo has taken place. Narcissism will now reign in this so-called sermon. That you'll be much better off than expecting some sudden shift in your life that fixes everything. And I've preached all over the world now enough to know that you can get a reaction in any room if you announce a shift. There's a shift, you know, that God is shifting something in your life. And if you say it's a sudden shift, well, the whole room will go off with that announcement. Uh, What? Jesus said, um, it's a little bit more like what a seed does in the soil. So he wants you to know that. And he wants you to know that some things just take time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some things, you know. I thought Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God, not some things. Warren Buffett said that. He was talking about people who want to get rich quick or build a business quick. He said, no matter how much talent or effort one possesses, some things just take time. Is anybody pregnant? Pregnant? Congratulations. Pregnant as well? Congratulations. Holly, you better not even look like you're about to raise your hand right now. I will come down there. Uh, Anybody else? I saw two here at Blakeney. I'm sure. Yeah, that's great. I'm sure at Uptown. That's a very young, youthful campus. I'm sure they're, they're all doing their part for church growth, repopulating, replenishing the earth. So you're pregnant. That's great. And uh, I, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting. Warren Buffett said, um, he said that if you, if you want to produce a baby, uh, you can't produce a baby in a month by getting nine different women pregnant. I'm going to let that sink in. He, he was, Why do I feel like that's not what Jesus was talking about there? Was try, he was trying to say that some things just take... Say with me. Some things just take time. Touch your neighbor say, I know you want it yesterday. I know you want Jesus to be your Burger King. I know you want it your way right away. I know you thought this was a drive-through, but some things just take time. How many know that destiny is not a drive-through where you place your order and pick it up three minutes later without pickles? Something, some, I don't like pickles. Some things just take time. Yeah, again, this is about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Yeah. And so uh, we got to get into this flow with Jesus if we're to expect him to work in our lives. And so uh, Jesus isn't inviting us into a flow with this parable. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He talks about stages. Now, I would say 
uh, that in this sermon, I see three different stages that we should look at. And one is the scattering stage. The scattering stage, he said that the kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed on the ground. And then he mentions the sprouting stage where the seed sprouts and grows. And in the scattering stage, you, you have to plow the ground or the seed's not going to go down. And in, the, and in the sprouting stage, you have to harvest the grain or it's going gonna, it's gonna to go bad in your field. I am not a farmer, nor am I the son of a farmer. Nor have I ever planted a garden, nor do I even like to eat vegetables. But I want to, I want to follow the analogy as closely as I can today. Bring out my, my tools because this sermon, y'all, this is a farm to table sermon, okay? Hello. This sermon is organic. And we want to use these illustrations. Now, do you see the way he put those tools in front of me? Uh, this is, this is, um, this is a, it's a scythe. Have you seen this before? This is a spade. Have, have you seen this before? Okay. The way he put these tools down, I think with, with this one first and this one second, illustrates the way that many of us want faith to produce in our lives. And, and Jesus is giving us a parable to illustrate an invisible kingdom, utilizing visible terms so we can relate and understand to know that the spade always comes before the sickle. Can you help me preach this? I sure would appreciate it if you didn't look so confused. Since when is what God's doing in my life the kingdom of God? Maybe the reason you look confused is because we live in a world that wants to harvest before we plow. What? We live in a world that wants to buy it before we can't afford it. We live in a world that wants to sleep with it before we put a ring on it. Um, what does this have to do with the kingdom of God? But Jesus said, if you want to be in this kingdom... <laughs> <if you're laughs> If you want to be in this kingdom, first the spade and then the sickle. Uh, what? Why in the world would you go out to a field with a sickle when you didn't plow up the ground with a spade? Why in the world would you expect a fruitful marriage when you haven't sown seed? He's not talking about fruitful marriage. He's, he's talking about the kingdom of God. Deeds of love. Why in the world would you expect a date from a woman at Elevation Church? He's not talking about a date. If you're not even on the greeter team looking for one. Does somebody say, oh, that got a response. I just turned this into a singles conference. My God. So he said that there is the scattering of the seed. And I love that part, don't you? The scattering of the seed. Don't you love when God just scatters the seed of his word over your life? Don't you love coming to church, man, where you can just get some good seed and some thoughts of inspiration and some... Thoughts of inspiration? I thought Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. 
and throw it out there, man. Even on uh, uh, social media, I try to scatter seed. That's my job, you know? That's what I... Yeah, the seeds you're scattering are like weeds. Yeah, weed seed here. I do. I am a, I am a, uh, a farmer, a spiritual sharecropper. Yeah, I didn't know that weeds were a crop that you could... Yeah, well, actually, you're making quite a lot of money sowing weeds in Christ's field. It's weird. And so what I'm trying to do is just hit you with some inspiration in the middle of your day when you're feeling sorry for yourself and give you a little kick sometimes to get you to the next place you got to be to at three o'clock on Tuesday because sometimes I can't make it off of Sunday seed. I need some fresh seeds scattered on my life. So... So he scattered the seed. That's what, that's what he did. And this is the third of, uh, of three different seed parables that Jesus uses. That Mark. Yeah, none of them have to do with inspiration, getting a date at Elevation Church, your dream destiny, or anything of that sort. Yeah, so there we go. The narcissistic switcheroo. The question is, what does Jesus mean by the phrase kingdom of God? It has nothing to do with your dream destiny. The kingdom of God is, well, where Christ reigns. Yeah, it's not a visible kingdom here and now. And the question is, where does Christ reign? He reigns among the penitent believers who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. Yeah, this. so this isn't about some dream destiny thingy that God is somehow you know, doing in your life or helping you get a date or anything. I think you get the point. I mean, th it's just bizarre, absolutely bizarre. Talk about narcissistic switcheroo. All right, we are going to go to our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian quick break when we come back uh we're gonna uh, well the number four the last one see if you can figure out which one of these things doesn't belong stay tuned don't want to miss it we'll be right back relevance schmelevance we preach christ crucified for our sins you're listening to fighting for the faith Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. This 
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. game for the day this Friday the 13th 2016 and month of May Let's uh, do this right, though. Uh, Since we're playing our game today, we have to play our music one more time. And I know you guys have been taking notes and carefully keeping track of the four different things that we are analyzing today as we play Sesame Street's game, One of These Things. Uh, Here we go last time around. These things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other by the time I finish this song? All right. So, yeah, that's right. One of these things, it's not like the others. Yeah, no, there's four things that you're considering today. Difficult, difficult game. And uh, since we're going to be doing a, a good sermon, that requires us to do this. the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust, their website, mljtrust.org. We're going to be listening to a sermon by the late Dr. Lloyd-Jones as he works his way through Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. The name of the sermon is Justifying the Ungodly. Justifying the ungodly. See if you can notice, well, the difference in all of these things. One of the things we're looking at today isn't anything like the others. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now we continue this evening our consideration of the argument of the Apostle Paul in the fourth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. We had arrived last last Friday evening at the third verse, where he quotes that scripture you remember concerning Abraham. For what saith the scripture? 
Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now the apostle's argument, you remember, is this. He has laid down, he has displayed before them this great and central and most vital doctrine of justification by faith only. That has been his theme in the third chapter from verse 21 to verse 31 at the end. Now he takes up possible objections. And indeed there were many who were putting these objections forward. And particularly the Jews. Their feeling was that somehow or another this teaching, this preaching of the gospel, this doctrine of justification by faith in particular, seemed to them to be undermining the whole of the Old Testament, making the Old Testament unnecessary, dismissing it, throwing it overboard. So the apostle is very anxious to prove that this gospel message, far from contradicting the Old Testament, is not only a, contra is not only a continuation of it, but, still more important, the doctrine which he is preaching is a doctrine that already is to be found in the Old Testament itself. Now, he sets out to prove that, you remember, by taking the case of Abraham, the father of the nation, the man to whom they always looked back and of whom they were so justly proud. What, he says, has our father Abraham found in this matter of the flesh? For he says, if Abram were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. But he says, that is unthinkable. No man can glory before God. Indeed, he says, it's not merely a matter of argument. We have a scripture. And then he quotes that uh, uh, momentous statement in Genesis 15, verse 6, which we have here in the third verse, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And you remember, we saw the content of that, that this believing of Abraham is not a mere believing in God in general. Abraham believed the gospel. You remember I quoted to you those words used by our Lord in that eighth chapter of John's gospel. He said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. Now we must be quite clear about that. If we are not, we shan't be able to follow the argument. What the apostle is saying is that God revealed the way of salvation in Jesus Christ to Abraham. Abraham didn't understand it fully nor clearly, but he saw it. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And what Abraham did was to believe this way of salvation, this justification by faith, this giving to men of a righteousness by God himself, and it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now that is, the, that is the content of this word believed. So often people think that Abram's belief just meant this, that when God said to him, come out of your country or of the Chaldees and go to Canaan, he believed him and did it. Of course it includes that, but there's much more. What God revealed to Abram, you can read it in the book of Genesis Start reading at, verse, uh, at the 12th chapter and go right on to the end of chapter 17 and 18 and you'll see there that Abraham, if you like, was given a preview of the gospel. 
And God made a covenant with him in terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Abraham believed that. And it was that that justified him and was accounted unto him as righteousness. Very well. But you see, the apostle having said that isn't content to leave it there. But that is the basic statement. And then he goes on in verses 4 and 5 uh, to um, substantiate this. Or to put it, if you like, in a still clearer manner. He expounds it. He elaborates it a little. In order that it may be clear beyond any doubt or peradventure. Now then, how does he do that? Well, in the fourth verse, he just makes a general proposition, which will appeal to everybody's reason and understanding. Here it is. Now, to him that worketh, uh, the reward is not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, what he's saying is this. It's a simple illustration taken uh, from ordinary life. If I do a piece of work for a man, and he pays me for doing it, well, now, the man in paying me is not really being gracious unto me. He's not exercising grace when he pays me. He owes it me. He owes me the debt. I've done the work, and I present my bill, I present my account, and he pays my account. Well, you mustn't say what a gracious act on his part. No, he'd be very wrong if he didn't pay me. He's in my debt. I've rendered the service. I've done the work. And therefore, when he pays me, it's not grace. That's a matter of debt. That's a matter which really is legal. It's not, he, he's not, as it were, just out of the kindness and the munificence and generosity of his spirit, doing something to me and for me, which he need not do. Not at all. It's a matter of debt. And as it were, I can put him into court if he doesn't pay me. There's no grace in that. Why? Well, because I've rendered the service. I have done the works. Very well, says the apostle. Now, that's a general proposition about which everybody is prepared to agree. But then he comes in the fifth verse to put it positively. That was negative, you see. There's no grace involved in that, he says. But, in verse 5... To him that worketh not, who doesn't work, who doesn't produce works, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now then, here is, I don't hesitate to assert, one of the most important verses in the whole of the Bible. I mean by that, that from the practical standpoint, from the standpoint of evangelism, if you like, or from the standpoint of becoming a Christian, there is really no more important verse than this particular fifth verse of the fourth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Therefore, it is important that we should be perfectly clear about it. I'm asserting that this is the strongest statement concerning justification which this great apostle ever made. It is he who makes the clearest statements about justification by faith. But here he goes beyond anything that he says anywhere else. Now take as a comparison the way in which he put it in the 26th verse of the previous chapter. He says to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just 
and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now that's a statement of the doctrine of justification by faith. He says the man who is justified is the man who believeth in Jesus. But here you see it is much stronger. It is all the difference between saying the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus and saying that justifieth the ungodly. Now then you see the importance of this distinction. Let's look at his terms. Who is the man that is justified? Well, he tells us two things about this man. The first thing he tells us about him is that he's a man who worketh not. He doesn't do any works. He doesn't produce any works. The further man he, he took in his illustration was a man who did work. To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace. But now the contrast to him that worketh is him that worketh not. Here is a man who's got no good works to show. He's got nothing to recommend himself. He certainly can't present an account and a bill because he's done nothing. He's a man who is a failure. He doesn't work. He's got no works to show. That's the first thing, and the apostle obviously is very concerned to emphasize that to bring out his contrast with the other. But then, you see, he goes beyond even that. The man who is justified is not only a man who hasn't got any good works to show, but he's actually ungodly. Justifieth the ungodly. Who is he referring to? Well, he's referring to Abraham. But you say Abraham was a very good man. I know that in one sense Abraham was a very good man. But nevertheless it is right to describe Abraham as he was by nature as ungodly. Indeed we are all by nature ungodly. Now I needn't keep you with this. The apostle has put that perfectly plainly to us in the previous chapter. He says therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. He says, the whole world has become guilty before God. He says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, even Abram. And to come short of the glory of God, to be under the condemnation of the law, is to be ungodly. And this is, of course, what he has been saying about the entire human race. We are all, by nature, the children of wrath even as others. There is none righteous. No, not one. Those are the statements of the scripture. And of course, the moment we really do become Christian, looking back, we see that we never have been godly. You see, these Jews thought that they were godly and that they were pleasing God. Those people, for instance, that we were reading about just now in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. Those people who were arguing uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ, they said, God is our Father. We have one Father who is God. And he says, no, God isn't your Father. He can't be, because if God were your Father, you wouldn't reject my words, because I've come from him, and you wouldn't be persecuting me. You are of your Father the devil. But they thought they were godly. They thought they were pleasing God. They were religious. They thought they were godly. But our Lord says that they were ungodly. You see, we all manufacture a God for ourselves by nature. 
And there are many people who think they're worshipping God who are really doing nothing but worshipping themselves, worshipping their own goodness. They've made a God of their own. And when they really meet the God who has manifested himself in the Bible, they hate him. They dislike him. When God tells them that they're so hopeless that they cannot save themselves, they resent it. And when God says that nothing but the death of his son can redeem them, they feel it's a personal insult, the offense of the cross. Now that's to be ungodly. Very well, that's what the apostle is saying, that Abraham by nature, like all the rest of mankind since the fall of Adam, was ungodly. Now this doesn't mean that we're all before conversion as bad as we can possibly be. It doesn't say that. But what it does say is that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now then, the apostle's statement is that God justifies such people. No works, but more, ungodly. Very well, what does this tell us about the doctrine of justification by faith only? Now, here I say is surely the clearest statement ever made concerning it. This is what I find. It establishes once and forever that justification is entirely God's action. He believeth, says the apostle, in him that justifieth the ungodly. It is he that justifies. It's entirely God's act. Apart from our actions, we have no works, no actions. It is God. The second thing that we see quite clearly, and we've already had to refer to this several times, but I must repeat it because people will persist in falling into this error. It shows that justification does not make us righteous because God justifies the ungodly. He justifies us while we are still ungodly. He doesn't first make us godly and then justify us. No, no. What Paul says is that he justifies the ungodly. Not the ungodly made godly. Not the unrighteous made righteous or become right. No, no. They are justified as they are without works and while still ungodly. Now, again, you see, we must emphasize it. That is where the Roman Catholic teaching is not only dangerous, but is a complete denial of the biblical teaching. They teach this, as you remember, that by our baptism we are made righteous and godly. Righteousness is infused into us, injected into us, put into us. And then they say that because we've been made righteous by our baptism, we are justified. But you see, that is to say that we are justified because we are sanctified which is the exact opposite of what the Apostle is saying. No, we are justified while we are still ungodly. There is the prisoner at the bar. He is guilty before the law. He's got no plea whatsoever, nothing to say for himself. It is he, as he is, standing in the dock, who is acquitted and who is pronounced free and righteous. He justifies the ungodly. Now, I'm emphasizing this for this good reason. If this verse doesn't make us see it, well, then nothing will make us see it. There is nothing beyond this. That brings me to my next way of putting it. My third point is this. This statement establishes that it is entirely a forensic, a legal matter. 
Justification is this declaration of God that he now is acquitting that person and that he henceforth is going to put on him the righteousness of Christ and regard him as righteous. That is the meaning of this act. It is illegal. It doesn't do anything to the man. It doesn't change him. It doesn't make him any better. It puts on to him this righteousness of Christ and God pronounces him to be just and righteous. In other words, the fourth point is this. That it is entirely, to use this term that the apostle uses here so much, a matter of reckoning, a matter of imputing, a matter of putting to one's account. Let me put it like this. The doctrine of justification by faith does not say that God now regards us as if we were righteous. That isn't true. That would be a lie. God cannot regard a man who is unrighteous as righteous. That isn't what the doctrine says. What it says is this, that God imputes this righteousness of Jesus Christ to us, puts that to our account, and because he's done that, he regards us as righteous. We have the righteousness of Christ. He sees us in Christ. Let me use the kind of illustration that was obviously in the mind of Count Zinzendorf when he composed that hymn which we've just been singing. We sang John Wesley's translation of it, you remember. Jesus, thy robe of righteousness, my beauty is my glorious dress. This is the picture. There is a man standing in his rags, in his filth, there is the condemned guilty sinner before God, prisoner in the dock. And what happens? Well, God puts on him this robe of righteousness. He puts on him the white robe of Christ's perfection, and he sees that and nothing else. That's the doctrine of justification. He puts that to our account. Very well, let's never forget this uh, fifth verse of the fourth chapter of Romans. I'm going to draw certain practical lessons from it in a moment. But there is the statement. Now then, what does he do next? Well, in verses 6, 7, and 8, he says, I've got a marvelous confirmation of this. That's what I'm saying. But listen, he says, it isn't only I who, who, say, who, who is saying this. David has said this. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the men unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, and then he quotes, you remember, from Psalm 32. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Say what you will, my friends, this Apostle Paul was a mighty debater, amongst other things. Mighty in controversy. Watch his method. He's already referred to Abram. Now he produces David. He knows what David meant to these Jews. He, he knows that they look back to him. David, the great king, the greatest of them all. And he knew the great promise concerning the Messiah that had been made to David, and that all the Jews knew that. Indeed, he knew that in the first book of Samuel, chapter 13, verse 14, we read this, that David was the man after God's own heart. 
David stood with Abram in the estimation of the Jews. Paul quotes him, therefore, and is able to prove, you see, that David says this precise thing that he's teaching. Now, David, it's interesting to notice the way in which the apostle uses this quotation from David's 32nd Psalm. David, you see, actually put it negatively. David said, oh, the happiness, oh, the blessedness of the man to whom, the man whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Oh, the happiness of the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now you notice what he says. Here is the happy man. Here is the blessed man. Here is a man who's right with God and who's in the favor of God. He's a man whose iniquities are forgiven. He's a man whose sins are covered. Something's put over them. Yes, but you notice this other interesting statement. He's a man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He won't reckon sin. What does that mean? It means this. The man has sinned. The man has committed sin. Well, what, why is he a blessed man? Oh, he's a blessed man for this reason. That though he has sinned and is guilty of many sins, God will not put down those sins to this man's account in his heavenly ledgers. He might do so. He has a perfect right to do so. But, says David, blessed is the man to whom God doesn't reckon the sins. He doesn't put them down in the account. He leaves them out. He's sent them away. He's covered them up. He's forgiven them. Now, this, you see, is very vital, isn't it, in support of the Apostle's doctrine. David has said that long ago in the 32nd Psalm. Now, David, you notice, puts it in a purely negative manner. He says, blessed is this man to whom, uh, whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered, uh, to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That, in a sense, is forgiveness, isn't it? Now, that is negative. And David, actually, in the 32nd Psalm, doesn't go any further at all. But you notice how Paul interprets him. He says, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the men unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Now, this is a very important point. That is, Paul's interpretation of David's psalm. And of course it is right. God never leaves us in a negative position. God doesn't merely forgive us our sins. You see, somebody can forgive you and yet uh, feel rather distant toward you. If you've done something against somebody, that person may say, well, very well, I won't put you in court, I won't punish you, I'll let you off, I'll forgive you. But that doesn't mean that, the, that you're reconciled fully, that you're in a position of harmony with one another, and that you're fully received back. Forgiveness is only the negative aspect, and God never stops at that. God always goes on. God is never satisfied with anything less than reconciliation. Well, is it right for Paul to do this? Well, yes, it is for this reason. That forgiveness is the first step in the process that leads to full reconciliation. Uh, David only mentions the first step. 
meaning by that that the first step is going to take it all in. Now, the Apostle Paul, in a very interesting place, does exactly the same thing himself. Those of you who are familiar with the epistle to the Ephesians will remember that the seventh verse of the first chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians says this, In whom, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, redemption means complete salvation. But Paul says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. As if the whole of redemption were nothing but the forgiveness of sins. It is Paul himself who says in many places that redemption means justification, sanctification, final deliverance of the body, glorification. Redemption is the whole thing. And yet he seems to describe it here as if it were just the forgiveness of sins. Well, that's just a manner of speech. He mentions the first step. And if God takes the first step, he will always take all the others. So you can leave it at the first step. It suggests and adumbrates the entire redemption. Now then, Paul is just here reminding us that David in Psalm 32 is doing exactly that very thing. He just puts it in terms of uh, iniquities forgiven, sins covered, and God not imputing our sins to us. Very well then, who is the blessed man? Let me put it to you like this. The man who is truly blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven as debt, whose sin is covered up so that God will never look at it again. He is one to whom it is never going to be imputed as a crime. There is the negative aspect, but it goes beyond that. He is also one to whom God reckons this righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now that is the doctrine of justification by faith. Here are we all of us sinners in the sight of God. What does the doctrine tell me? It tells me this. As I am there standing, my debt is cancelled. My sin is covered. God casts it into the sea of his forgetfulness. He will never look at it again. He'll never see it again. It's blotted out. Out of his sight for all eternity. And I shall never be charged with it as a crime. I am completely delivered from it. But on top of all that, God puts to my account and reckons to me this righteousness of Jesus Christ, his Son. Now then, what the Apostle, you see, has demonstrated is this. That that has always been God's way and method of dealing with men in sin. It was what he did to Abraham. David says that he does it. So we've got the two greatest possible Jewish authorities agreeing with the doctrine of justification by faith only. Now then, you see what it comes to. It is always this question of reckoning 
it is always this matter of imputation. So let me once more state this great and most blessed doctrine. This is what the doctrine of justification by faith teaches us. God does not reckon our sins to us. But you may say, how can he do that and still be God? We have committed these sins. How can God not reckon them to us? though we have committed them and are guilty of them. The answer is this. He has reckoned them to his only begotten beloved Son. Now I read to you that portion out of Second Corinthians chapter 5 because the great apostle puts it there so plainly and so clearly. God was in Christ through Christ, he means, God was in all that he did through Christ. What was he doing? God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing, not reckoning their trespasses unto them. Well, what did he do then? Ah, he reckoned their trespasses unto him. God, you remember, he says in the last verse, hath made him Christ to be sin for us, though he knew no sin. God took our sins, and instead of putting them to us and to our account, he put them to his account. He put them on him, and he punished them in him. Christ, of course, came to do that. He volunteered to do it. He offered to do it. He came into the world deliberately in order to do this. And that is how it happens. Instead of reckoning my sins to me, they were reckoned to Christ, and God smote him, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead unto sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. We'll go back to Isaiah 53, we beheld him smitten of God. God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Instead of reckoning them to us, he reckoned them to him. And he bore them. And he bore the punishment of them. That's the first part of justification. Then that brings us to the second part. You see the reversal of the process? Our sins not reckoned to us, but reckoned to him. The second step, his righteousness... Reckon to us. What a wonderful piece of bookkeeping, as it were. What a tremendous manipulation of the accounts, if I may so put it. We had no righteousness at all. He has a perfect righteousness. God reckons his righteousness to us. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing, not reckoning their trespasses unto them, and then, you see, hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? That, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Is it clear to you, my friends, that that is what is meant by justification? It is all God's action 
we do nothing at all and we cannot do anything at all. We have no works, our righteousness is as filthy rags, it is dung and refuse, we've got nothing at all, we are ungodly, we are helpless, we are hopeless. God does it all. It is entirely God's action. It is what he does in every respect with these sins of ours which he puts on him and punishes them in him and his righteousness which he puts on us. It is all done to us. And we receive it all passively from God. Now then, a Christian, a person who is saved, is one who realizes that and believes that. That is how we become Christians. A Christian is one who, having realized this truth, doesn't attempt to do anything at all. The moment you try to do anything, it means you don't understand this. Of course, realizing this great truth afterwards, you will strive with all your might and main to please him and to do all you can, but that doesn't save you, and you don't rely upon that in your salvation. Of course, the man who believes this repents. Yes, but it isn't your repentance that saves you. You do not become saved because you repent. You do not become saved because you believe the gospel. You become saved because God justifies you by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have no works at all. Faith is not a works. We have nothing whereof to boast. Nothing whatsoever. It is entirely the action of God. Now a Christian is one who sees that and who rests upon it. Let's be clear about this. Shall I ask you a question? Are you a Christian? Are you saved? Well, now this is how you discover the answer. Have you ceased altogether to look at yourself or to yourself in every shape and form? And are you looking only and entirely and utterly to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what he has done on your behalf? Would you know for certain whether you're a Christian? Here's the answer. Do you realize that you can do nothing? That you can do nothing at all about making yourself a Christian? I'll go further. Have you ceased to attempt to do anything? Salvation is entirely the free gift of God. It is a gift which is given to the ungodly. So you see, if you start saying, ah, now I, I feel I ought to be doing, the, the moment you say, but now, I say you haven't got it, you're not a Christian. So that, that brings me to my most searching test of all. Do you believe now at this moment, just as you are, that you become a Christian exactly as you are, entirely through what God has done in Jesus Christ on your behalf. This time element is very important. If you say to me, Anna, but wait a minute, you don't expect me really to be able to settle that here and now. Oughtn't I to go back and decide that I must pray more, that I must read my Bible more, that I must stop doing certain things and start doing... No, the moment you begin to talk like that, you haven't seen it. 
If you feel that you've got still to do something, that you ought to weep more, or that you ought to feel sin more, or that you ought to have a greater sense of conviction, or anything, I don't care what it is, if you're going to bring in anything, you haven't seen it. For the doctrine of justification tells us that God justifies the ungodly as they are. Doesn't wait to make them godly first. Doesn't expect them to do it. He says they can do nothing. They've got no works. That's the whole doctrine. Abraham just believed. Didn't do anything. David says, oh, the blessedness of this men whose sins are thus dealt with. Which really means, ultimately, says Paul, uh, that he accepts this doctrine that God imputes righteousness to him. If you can't see that you be, can become, become a Christian now at this moment, you are not seeing the doctrine. The moment one sees this doctrine, one says, well, yes, I am as capable of becoming a Christian now as I will be in a thousand years. If I went home and went out to the world and became a monk or a hermit and spent my whole days in fasting and sweating and praying, I'd be no nearer than I am now. Thank God. God justifies the ungodly. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Just as I am. Without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come, just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. To him whose blood can cleanse each spot. O Lamb of God, I come. That's the Christian confession. That you realize that you're ungodly, that you're guilty before God, that you deserve nothing but punishment and hell, that you've got nothing to recommend you, that you can never produce anything to recommend you. But that God in his infinite love and kindness sent his son into the world in order to deliver you. In his perfect life of obedience, in his atoning, sacrificial, substitutionary death upon the cross, when he took your sins upon him and received their punishment. That's it. That you see that. So you don't have to do anything. And you don't say, oh, give me a moment. Give me time. No, no. If you had, I say, a thousand years, it would avail you nothing. You can see it now. It's God who does it all. And he does it in spite of us. In spite of our being what we are. We become a Christian immediately. It is this giving to us. This reckoning to us. Of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Iniquities pardoned. Sins covered. And all this sin never again imputed to us, but positively and gloriously clothed with a righteousness divine. And therefore able to say with Count Zinzendorf, 
and with Charles Wesley, that clothed with this, we are ready to face anybody or anything who can lay any charge against us. Midst flaming worlds in this array, bold will I hold up my head, not relying on myself, but relying only upon this righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, which God, in his infinite love and mercy and kindness and compassion, has given to me freely through the instrument, the channel of faith. It is all of God. It is all the gift of God. And this is the word that should establish that in our minds once and forever. God justifies the ungodly while he is still ungodly. And then makes him godly. Amen. Amen. So, well, there you go. Those are our four things for you to consider. Let's play the song one more time. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other by the time I finish this song? Yeah, that's right. I mean, hopefully this is... Really obvious. Um, you know, I, you know, I tried not to make this too difficult of a game today. So there are your four things for you to consider as we listen to Victoria Osteen, Perry Stone, Stephen Furtick, and Martin Lloyd Jones. And one of these things isn't even close to, even, even remarkably close to at all like the others. See if you can figure it out. I hope that you're able to do it. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>